Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina is simply the best way there is to keep on top of all the important news coming out of China with our indispensable daily newsletter, our website, and our growing range of podcasts and videos. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Joining me from storied Goldcorn Hauler in Nashville, Tennessee, is a man determined, despite the obvious obstacles to be the first person arrested under Beijing's newly proposed national security law for Hong Kong. Jeremy, before your inevitable incarceration, please greet the people this one last time, won't you? (laughs) Come and get me. (laughs) You never know, man. The arm is long. It's long. Yeah, no, it is sadly very long. (laughs) So, chances are, if you are a listener to this show or have ever heard any talks I've given publicly, you've heard me talk about cognitive empathy, informed empathy, I've sometimes called it. Uh, It's something I've often urged people to embrace, not just to be emotionally empathetic, but to do the work of actually understanding the experiences and the assumptions that form the worldview of other peoples. In this case, I mean, in particular, the values and beliefs and the habits of mind of Chinese and Chinese elites in particular. I I can think of nothing more important to this project than understanding how it is that Chinese elites interpret history, not just China's history, but world history as they see it. That is not uh, a world history that is focused on, on Pericles or Plato or Plutarch or on Aristotle or Augustine or Aquinas. There is a whole different dramatis personae going on, a totally different geography, different political, religious, philosophical traditions, a, a very different set of challenges, too. That's why I was so excited when I learned that Michael Schumann, a reporter who has lived and worked in China for something like 23 years, was about to publish a book called Superpower Interrupted, The Chinese History of the World. I've mentioned it before on this show while I was reading it. I recently finished it, and today we are delighted to be joined by Michael to talk about it. Michael Schumann, welcome to Seneca. High time we had you on. Thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, great to have you. Welcome, Michael. Uh, Since this is your first time on Seneca, even though you're quite well known among people who read a lot of journalism uh, about China, your name might not be as familiar to some of our listeners. So could you give us a a, a bit about your background? What brought you to China in the 90s, where you've worked and the previous books you've published? Uh, Sure. Um, I've been a uh, journalist in, in Asia since 1996. 
Uh, I used to write for the Wall Street Journal and Time Magazine. Uh, now I do a bunch of stuff. I write for The Atlantic, and uh, I'm a columnist for uh, Bloomberg Opinion. Uh, and I've written two other books about Asia. Uh, my last book was called uh, Confucius and the World He Created, which is kind of a, a history of Confucius's impact on uh, Asia and the world. And uh, before that, I wrote a book called uh, The Miracle, The Epic Story of Asia's Quest for Wealth, which was a, uh, a history of Asia's big economic boom over the last 60 years. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm uh, a big history buff. I studied Asian history in college. Uh, and it's kind of like uh, it's part, part job and more hobby, uh, continuing to read about as much, <laughs> as much history in the region as I get my hands on. Well, Michael, like I said, I was really psyched when I saw that you were working on this book. Uh, and when I, I started the book, I was torn between this, thank God, somebody's finally done this, and why the f*** didn't I think to write this book? Uh, so congrats on the publication, and I do hope it gets widely read. But I must say, I'm surprised that no one has taken up this idea before, when it, it seems like pretty blindingly obvious. Uh, what was the immediate impetus behind this? And were you seeing that something was missing in the analysis that was out there? Well, you know, I, I think it's natural that uh, people in one country or one society tend to see the world around them through the prism of that society. And uh, that includes history. So when you are, uh, you know, grow up in New Jersey like I did, you know, you, you get a, a certain history of the world that relates to the society around you. So when you grow up in, in the West, that usually means you start with, like, ancient Greece and the Greek philosophers, and you go through the whole history of Europe, you know, Rome and all that stuff, and then you eventually get to 1492 and America and so on. And other parts of the world tend to come into this narrative only when it's, it's part of that underlying story that leads to where you are. And it got me thinking that, you know, other people in other parts of the world, for example, China, uh, have an entirely different story uh, that they learn in school and at home from their parents and on television, wherever else they, they pick this stuff from, stories about their past, uh, they read uh, different books, different, they have different philosophers, they have different events that mean something to them, events that are really important to someone like me and you guys living in the U.S. may not be nearly as relevant to someone living in India or, or China and vice versa. So this got me thinking that if you really want to understand China and what China is today, then you have to kind of know this whole story that the Chinese know that the rest of us don't know. And if you know the story, then you you get a better perspective on how the Chinese today see the world around them and then what that means for where China may be going in the future. So, Michael, uh, the Chinese government is constantly lecturing us to uh, understand China better and understand its 5,000 years of history. And... Uh, on the other hand, the basic idea of, of looking at China's history to get some sense of what China and the Chinese government want right now and how, how China sees the world isn't completely new. Uh, we've had uh, Howard French uh, on the podcast a couple of times, and he wrote All Under Heaven. Um, 
And you could even include uh, that work of uh, sort of pop politics and history when China rules the world by Martin Jacques, I think, in, in the category of books that look to history uh, to explain Chinese motivations and ambitions. Uh, what is different about your approach? Well, I, you, you raise a really good question, actually, right there, because, you know, what is history, right? Uh, history to a certain extent is what people think history is. I mean, history is always being reinterpreted. And, and of course, you know, this, this government here in China right now does a tremendous amount of uh, reinterpreting and rewriting of history. So what I didn't want to do is do a Communist Party history of the world uh, based on kind of the, the messaging of the current government and uh, current academic thinking in China, I, I, that's what I did want to do. So the thing is, like, how do you, how do you begin to approach this, this subject? And what I, I decided to do is to, to look at, at Chinese, to super focus on certain elements of Chinese history, mainly China's relations with the outside world, China's perceptions of foreigners and, and the outside world. And... Uh, the Chinese ideas about where they fit into the world around them. And to get the sense of that, I almost wanted to do it. I mean, you can't do it in real time, but I wanted to go back to these different periods of history and and read what Chinese scholars and philosophers and poets and historians were writing at the time or as close to the time as you could get when events were actually unfolding. So you could get a sense of how the Chinese felt about things throughout their history when they were actually going through it. And I thought this would provide a, a very different perspective rather than looking at kind of oh, modern historians going back and, re and seeing how they interpret their history today, to actually read how Chinese saw their world around them as they were kind of living in, the, living in that world at the time and to see what, see what narrative that created and where that narrative would take me. So I, I get the I get the project. I think it's it's great. So it was more sort of a, an objective look at the subjective view of history as it was happening by the people who were were chronicling it. Uh, so you, you didn't then include, for example, uh, Chinese textbooks from you know more recent times, or do a lot of interviews of with with contemporary Chinese people to sort of see what their body of historical knowledge uh, and their beliefs and their interpretations of history were. Actually, no, I didn't. I, I did not use a lot of uh, modern materials except when referring to the modern period. Um, you know, I, 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 for example, you know, I went all, all the way back to reading uh, Chinese texts and philosophical texts going back to, you know, the, the Warring States period mm -hmm. as to what those people were writing about their world around them, you know, at the time. And I continued that throughout the entire history. So, you know, the, the material that's cited in, in the book from, you know, the Han Dynasty period are actually people who were writing about, you know, writing at the time or as close to the time as you could get. I did that purposely to get a sense of what Chinese scholars and Chinese historians and statesmen, whoever else was, whoever was doing the writing, was thinking about themselves and the world at, at the time. I mean, I did use secondary sources to help me understand what I was reading in these old texts. Uh, you know, they're not necessarily self-explanatory. So in, in that sense, I did use a lot of uh, 
both you know Chinese and non-Chinese historians and writers to help me understand the context of the time and the events, and so I could put these kind of texts in pers- in the proper perspective at the moment and to understand how people have understood these texts. Uh, but when you look at the actual citations in the book, I, I almost exclusively cite Chinese writers from their own time period. Michael, from the bibliography, it looks like you read and synthesized a pretty bewildering number of books. Um, what were the standout books that you read on China's history, uh, the ones that have stood up well and convey uh, this sense of history as experienced by the Chinese themselves? Well, you know, I, I spent a lot of time actually reading the original uh, material, um, either, you know, I, I, I'm not uh, mainly, in, mainly in, in translation. So, you know, I, uh, I spent a lot of time with the original sources as, as much as I could uh, to see what was actually being written about. Uh, and in terms of the secondary sources, there's some uh, very, very good books on uh, individual uh, periods, uh, and especially in regard to how China relates to the world. There's, there's a wonderful book, for example, by, uh, called The Genesis of, of East Asia, which which spends a lot of time. It, it starts at the end of the Han Dynasty and it it goes through the uh, the early period of the Tang Dynasty and it 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 goes in a lot of fascinating detail about how Chinese civilization was spreading both inside what we you know today consider modern China, but uh, also to to the to the societies around the region and how that started the creation of something like a Chinese cultural zone in East Asia and how East Asia was formed. Uh, mm. That was really, really fascinating. Uh, I, there's also um, a more modern book uh, called um, East Asia Before the West uh, by a, a political scientist uh, named David Kong. And he, he went into a lot of detail into how East Asia worked diplomatically and economically before the, the West kind of came on the scene and started to, to, to dominate the region and what, what Asia looked like in that sense from kind of a, the, the Chinese perspective. Uh, so there is actually a lot of, there's a lot of good work out there that's very, very specialized and, and somewhat academic uh, that can look at the kind of these specific issues uh, over time. But, but I, I wanted to do something else. I wanted to take it out of a- academia and kind of make it digestible, understandable to a wider audience who I think really needs to know this stuff, but, you know, isn't going to read through 50 academic works to try to, try to <laughs> figure it out on their own. So, Michael, in, in one of the chapters that focused on the Tang Dynasty uh, and on Tang cosmopolitanism, so, I mean, it wasn't just about uh, China going out, but it was also about foreign influences coming in. And uh, I definitely picked up that you had read The Golden Peaches of Samarkand by Edward Schaefer, which is like one of my favorite yes, books. Yes, I did, actually. That was definitely in there, yeah? Uh, I did use that as sort of, that is an, that is an absolutely drop-dead fascinating uh, book. I've never read anything like it. There's nothing else like it. Not just about Chinese history, but about like anything else, really, um, in the detail that it goes into about about the the, the the Tang world and how foreign 
influences played such an important role in that world for everything about what people ate and how they dressed and what furniture they had and uh it's it's a it's a tremendously interesting book oh i'm glad you think so too contemporary understandings of, of chinese history are obviously very different from how people say understood history during the tong or during the song or the ming or even uh even in the republican period uh right now uh the Chinese interpretation of history, which I, I understand is not is not the the focus of your of your book, uh, th- there is this thread in the ideology that basically dismisses everything pre modern as just feudal and backward. And there are plenty of Chinese people, including plenty of Chinese elites, who have you know drunk pretty deeply of of Western world history uh, as well. I'm I'm wondering what a contemporary Chinese person reading your book would make of it. Would, would they recognize this as uh, the Chinese view of their historical experience, or would it seem to them uh, something quite foreign? Uh, that's a very good question. You know, I don't, I don't know uh, yet. I mean, I, it was, it's going to be interesting to see how, how the average Chinese person uh, who reads this book, what they would think of it. I mean, I, I've had some, a couple Chinese scholars have read it, but that's a different audience. Um, I, I think when I look at how, for example, you know, the Chinese media and here today and the Chinese government present certain parts of their history, you can immediately start seeing discrepancies, things that if people picked up my book, they, they, they may not actually know their own history. I mean, the... The one thing that, for example, stands out to me is the way that the the voyages of Zheng He uh, are presented. Uh, yeah, they're they're usually sold as a, a peaceful exploration and and trade, uh, in contrast to the you know the rabid conquests of the Western imperialists. And granted, Zheng He did not go off and conquer India, so in that respect. There is truth to that narrative. But what gets left out is that the, Zheng He carried t- thousands of soldiers with him wherever he went, and he did engage in military action. And the purpose of these, uh, these voyages, by right out of the, the official Ming histories, was basically to show Chinese power and to a certain extent in- intimidate the rest of Asia. Uh, and that is something that I think the modern Chinese learning things in school, or they're not exactly going to get that side of it. So, yes, I think it would be very interesting. to. I'd love to sit down with a bunch of, uh, of educated Chinese having after reading my book to see what they thought uh, and to see what maybe they gained out of it or maybe they thought I was dead wrong. I mean, it would be a fascinating conversation. Indeed. Michael, we hear a lot about uh, American exceptionalism, uh, but your book is concerned with what you might call, or maybe you did in fact call, I, I don't remember, Chinese exceptionalism. Um, how, how would you describe Chinese exceptionalism? Uh, interesting. I do actually use the term Chinese exceptionalism. And uh, in some ways, it is remarkably similar to the American version. The American version is this idea, right, of the, the city upon a hill, right, the guiding light that's going to bring liberty to the to to the world, and that Americans feel that they have they have a mission to change the world. Uh, the Chinese, especially the early, very early Chinese, going back to you know what Confucius said, and uh, felt in a very a very similar way 
that they felt that they had a, a superior civilization, that basically the civilization that they had was civilization, that there, there was nothing else. They had civilization, and by therefore definition, everybody else was uncivilized, which is where the, the term barbarian comes from, which you often see in translations of, of Chinese texts. And, but they also felt that Chinese civilization had a, was transformative. It had a transformative effect that if you adopted the ways of Chinese civilization, that therefore you could become civilized. And you see that word transform used in kind of official imperial uh, language and rhetoric when they were discussing their relations with the world, that Chinese, that the, the Chinese are going to transform other people. Chinese, if you learn, learn the ways of the Chinese, you would be transformed. So in that sense, the Chinese mission has these odd similarities with the modern American mission, not necessarily where, where the Chinese felt that they really had a, they really could change the world. Chinese civilization could change the world in, into a better place. Do you think it would be fair to say, though, that, that China, Chinese exceptionalism was more passive and not proselytizing, that yes, they believed that Chinese civilization could be transformational, but that was if the barbarian came to me, supplicated himself before, you know, the son of heaven, uh, rather than, you know, China uh, sort of missionarily out, out there pushing its its view. And I, you know, I wonder if there are echoes today. Uh, that's actually very interesting. I think that's a very true statement. Uh, I think generally, when you see how how the how the Chinese kind of manage their foreign relations, it was very much about people coming to China, uh, and that was actually a sign of uh, you know the the more virtuous an em uh, an emperor, uh, the the more peoples from around the world he could he could attract. That was a, a sign of the emperor's virtue. So there was always an idea that that people had to seek out China and Chinese civilization. It wasn't necessarily kind of the same missionary sense, except there is an interesting passage in, in the Analects, and I do not have it memorized. I'm sorry, like uh, like so many people did for so long. But it, it, it goes something to the effect of uh, Confucius saying that he would like to live among the uh, e-barbarians and someone listening says oh well how could you deal with them they're uncouth they're barbarians and he is, his answer was something to the effect of that if uh, if a, a sagely person lived amongst them uh, how could there be any uncouth behavior in other words if uh, if some Chinese gentleman was going to settle among the barbarians and the barbarians would learn from him and therefore he would no longer they would no longer be barbarians um, right. So I, there, there was there was a sense in that respect that contact between China and other peoples would have this transformative effect that that Chinese civilization was just so wonderful and it was so obvious that uh, naturally other people would be attracted to it and adopt it. Jeremy, just now you were asking about exceptionalism. I, I have there's this guy I, I knew in Beijing named Greg Blandino, and uh, I remember he once said. I thought it was really true. He said, uh, American exceptionalism and Chinese exceptionalism are, are very similar in that they're both, you know, built on this hubristic notion uh, about the superiority of their own civilization. But the difference is that uh, American exceptionalism believes that American institutions and values are true for everyone and ought to be true for everyone, whereas the Chinese believe that theirs are so specifically conditioned by their own historical experience that 
you, you might y'all might not even bother because you know it's not going to work for you. <laughs> Uh, which is, I thought, pretty funny. Uh, that's an actually a very interesting point because the, the Chinese did develop this idea, I mean, going back to the Han Dynasty period, this idea of, you know, of the historian Bangu, right, where it was, it was uh, the inner and the outer world. Right. Uh, I, you know, the, the, the Chinese experience with, especially with, with the Xiongnu, uh, the, the northern steppe people that they had this massive war with over a period, period of decades, um, they kind of came to learn that, well, you know what? Maybe not everybody is going to be Chinese. Uh, that there are basically barbarians who are so barbaric that they, they will not necessarily see the wonders of our civilization and they will stay outside of it. And, uh, and maybe that's not necessarily a bad thing. They have their own way of life and their own reasons for being that way. So, yes, I, I think you're right. I think Americans think that their, their ideals apply to everybody, where the Chinese were kind of a little more realistic and realized that uh, maybe, maybe our stuff isn't for everybody, but we wish it was. <laughs> um, Mike, Michael, what are, what are the big areas of contention between Chinese and Westerners in their understanding of, of Chinese history? I don't know how many times I've gotten into this with people. Is the issue of how continuous Chinese history actually is uh, you find Westerners and occasionally some Chinese arguing against the notion that the China of today is in any meaningful way continuous with the China of you know, the Han Dynasty, given the centuries-long interruptions that we've seen, um, particularly you know from the whole late third century all the way up until you know 589. Um, what what does that matter? Does it change anything in the way that China looks at the world today? Uh, does it change anything in China's ambitions? I mean, if Chinese civilization isn't as continuous or ancient or cohesive or, or even definable as many Chinese you know, today believe it to be, does it matter whether it's continuous? You know, that's a very interesting question. I mean, I mean to a certain extent, you know, when, when you look at the last two, 200 years, you mentioned this earlier, that... You know, Chinese civilization has not necessarily been continuous, right? I mean, uh, as the Qing dynasty was was weakening uh, and you had all of these new foreign ideas pouring in from the West in the late 19th century, early 20th century, you know, you read the people who were writing at the time, whether it was uh, Kong Yue and, and uh, Lan Qichao and, and Sun Yat-sen and these people, I mean, they, they basically thought, you know, Chinese civilization was a problem, uh, that Chinese tradition was getting in the way of China being a modern society. When you read the founders of the Communist Party, they thought more or less everything had to go. You need to have a total change of, chi- chi- of, of, chi- of Chinese life uh, in order for China to join the modern world. So in that sense, right. uh, you know, and actually, that's why my book is called Superpower Interrupted. The, that's the interruption. Uh, I, I talk about it's not an interruption in, in political power or military power. It's an it's an interruption in in this civilizational uh, power that that China has. And it's a great phrase, civilizational power. That's a great it, phrase it, because that was really the the foundation of Chinese power through this and through its entire history. Right? I mean, as you know, China was not always politically unified. It was very often not a very strong military power. I mean, the Chinese got beaten up by just about everybody at some stage. And uh, but what was the source of Chinese power? Well, it was it was still basically the foundation of of civilization in East Asia, uh, and that didn't change until the arrival of of the West, and not even the, actually the arrival of the West. 
because that was in the 16th century, the, the dominance of the West in the, in the, starting in, in the late 19th century in Asia. That's when things really, really changed uh, for, for China and the Chinese world. So in that sense, Chinese civilization has not been continuous anymore. And the Chinese were at war with their own history, at war with their own civilization. But uh, to a certain extent, I think now maybe you see some of these ideas coming back. Uh, when you see how China is responding in this kind of this pandemic world, the the, the messaging from the, the the government that it's kind of that China is exceptional. Look what look how we defeated this virus and other countries weren't able to do it. Uh, you know, look at how we we helped the world with masks and other countries didn't have them. Um, you know, our system is superior. We're a, we're a superior civilization. It feels to me that some of this old old messaging that you you could hear all the way back before the Han Dynasty. Uh, I mean, the the topics have changed. The the spirit of it sounds can sound, sound extremely familiar uh, when you go back and read what what people were writing Chinese were writing two two thousand years ago. I mean, I think one of the reasons why a lot of Westerners and some Chinese react against the idea of uh, a continuous uh, history of China is, you know, first of all, 5,000 years, the cliche is a number that is... Not supportable. Perhaps not that easy to defend. It's not, it's not supportable. Um, and the other annoying thing, I suppose, is that, I mean, for example, in the last couple of weeks, uh, Hua Chunying, one of the foreign ministry spokespersons, has uh, referred to America having less than 300 years of history. Uh, you know, uh, and in the next tweet, referring to the West and Western media as though it's some kind of whole and complete uh, entity. So, I, I mean, I, I think that there is often this sense of hypocrisy coming out of especially official Chinese messaging, but also a lot of the uh, would-be explainers of China, the sense that, you know, what, what, what's, what's good for the goose isn't good for the gander. China can claim 5,000 years of history when convenient uh, and blame the West as a whole for certain things. But when America you know, does other things, then it's only got 250 <laughs> years of history. There's a sort of a, there's a hypocrisy there that I think makes it particularly delightful to critique the idea of 5,000 years of continuous history. No, I it does, does. I, I see what you, where you're going with it. I mean, that, uh, you know, either the United States is a, and the rest of the colonial offshoots, Australia and New Zealand and so forth, Either they are part of the West and therefore are part of this, you know, much longer Western history, or they're not. Right. That goes back to the Greeks, and you know, more before, or they're not. Um, go ahead, I Michael. Mean, they're, they're, that's sort of a comment. Uh, the, 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 that that <laughs> most terrible of things—a comment, but also a question. Well, I mean, there there is something. Uh, that rings familiar about that attitude going all the way back to very early days. I mean, one thing that the Chinese writers were not particularly good at, you know, going all the way back to the, you know, the Warring States period, and it was taking much interest in civilizations around them. I mean, there was always a bit of dis, uh, disparagement towards peoples that were not following Chinese civilization. I mean, that's why they were often called barbarians. But even beyond that, I mean, there was, there was very little 
interest taken in learning how these how these people lived, uh, what their own societies were like. I mean, there were some writers uh, who did look into it a little bit, but generally speaking, um, there is the, the Chinese writers tended to tended to dismiss other peoples. Uh, and, you know, and you can see this really uh, late uh, in, like, I'm thinking of the 19th century. After the first Opium War, there was uh, a Chinese historian who was basically scolding his own society, scolding his own leaders for being like, you know nothing about these Westerners. We've been around them for 300 years, and yet you never bother to learn the first thing about them. And that's why we're in, right. in, in, in the mess that we're in. Uh, and there was an element of truth. I mean, there, there's 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 uh, the emperor who who fought and lost the opium war. Uh, didn't really have a clear idea where Great Britain was, and and he didn't understand why there were Indian soldiers fighting with the British, uh, because they they were not very educated about the outside world. And and to a certain extent, you see that in the official Chinese, as you were talking about it, because there's a feeling that. Oh, the West doesn't have the same culture. The West doesn't have the same history and civilization. Of course it does. It goes back a very long, Western civilization goes back a very long way as well. Um, but I think there's a certain, a certain kind of dismissal of that on the Chinese side. Absolutely. On the other hand, how would you compare the knowledge of uh, international affairs and uh, other countries in Chinese high school uh, uh, graduates compared to, say, their American co- counterparts? That's a very hard question for me to answer. I've never actually really looked into that, to be honest with you. Uh, to, I've never looked into in great detail how, uh, what, what kind of education in non-Chinese history uh, Chinese are getting in high school these days. I mean, I, I think on a certain level, because the United States has been the superpower and... and I think I think generally Chinese educated Chinese, very 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 generally speaking, probably know more about the U.S. than the average educated American knows about China. But that is a total anecdotal kind of uh, guess, um, <laughs> and and I think it just sort of extended. I'm going to second it anyway. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I think it's just a certain extent it's by default, right? Because people learn about the U.S. through Hollywood movies. They learn about it because they study English, and they 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 read more, you know, Western literature and things. Or, or there's just more Chinese studying in the U.S. than there are Americans studying in China. So, uh, yeah. I I think certain a certain amount is is not by design, but by default. But you know, I. I I went to a regular public high school in, in New Jersey in the U.S., and it was a fairly good high school. But w- we had a choice, basically, of American history and American history. That, that was our choice. I mean, I didn't, <laughs> learn any, I didn't learn any of this stuff. I got little tidbits of it in high school. But it was only when I went to college and I started seeking things out. You have to seek it out. And I started taking classes on Chinese history and Indian history and Middle Eastern history. And, and that's when I, I but, you know, a lot of people don't don't do that because it's not of their interest. So I think if you're an American and you're not actively interested in this stuff, you can know surprisingly little about a place like China. And honestly, even if you're learning about China, I've I've learned I've learned this in my conversations with people about this book when people are talking to me about it. Very often, the Western history of China begins with the Opium War. Uh, people right, only right, right. know China 
of the last 150 years or 200 years. And they kind of know vaguely, oh, China was a great power and they had these emperors and dynasties. And uh, they were they were uh, one of the original great civilizations, uh, you know, with the Nile Valley and that kind of thing. And they, you know, but but most people only know China in detail when China was basically, you know, not a world power, which is which is not the way things traditionally have been. Michael, there's a particularly good passage in your chapter, Pax Sinica, a, a very thoughtful passage, I thought, about the so-called tribute system and about how we should think about it. You know, you, you, you urge us to recognize that we impose a Eurocentric values framework on it, and that's in part why we find it so distasteful, but that just because of this, we, we can't dismiss altogether the idea that there is a, a typically Chinese approach to foreign policy uh, that might be, you know, represented in that system. You seem to be aware of the critique of the so-called tribute system that's appeared in a lot of the recent scholarship uh, papers by like Peter Perdue and others. Anyway, it's an example, I think, of, of the balancing act that uh, you have to keep up through much of the book. And it's one that we've talked about, you know, Jeremy and I have talked about constantly on the show. Uh, you know, I think it's the, it's the essence of the art in China watching. You have to have like a good sense of when historical reflexes are still in play and when you can make broad civilizational generalizations and when you can't, when, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's, detached from its history. Do you, do you have a rule of thumb for how you approach this? Because it's, it's a tough one. Uh, you're, you're talking about the tribute system specifically, or? Not just with the tribute system, but more generally, recognizing, you know, on the one hand, that China, like any other country, is shaped profoundly by its history, but also that, like other countries, it's not trapped, that there are many ways in which Chinese behavior isn't sui generis, is, you know, that it conforms to, you know, what any other great power would do, that, you know, you can't always chalk up Chinese behavior to some historical reflex, right? Uh, look, I, I, I think you have to be, uh, you have to be flexible in, in your thinking, where to a certain extent, both of what you said is true simultaneously. I know that makes no sense. It's on a certain level, but, no, you know, I... <laughs> That's the truth of China. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, on a certain level, not just China, but, you know, any society is, is, is in part a function of our history and where we came from and what ideas developed and what values developed and uh, uh, historical experiences of a community and, and how, that, how that shaped what the, the society is today. On the other hand, things change, right? Nothing stays the same. So... There's always new influences coming in that then also you know, affect society. Um, you know, you, I think the tribute system is, is, a, is, a, perfect, is you know, a perfect example because, you know, this is a subject that if you, if you put 10 his, Chinese historians in a room and get them on the topic of the tribute system, you'll probably get 15 opinions and you might actually get a fistfight. I mean, there there is so much hostility towards this, and a lot of it it just depends on how how you want to see it. You know, the idea that there was no specific form of Chinese foreign relations uh, is not held up by the way that Chinese foreign policy worked and the way it interacted with with other societies. Chinese foreign policy and relations with with other peoples did not look the same as. For example, what the United States does today—it just—it just doesn't, right? 
so to yeah. say that there is no system, I guess, maybe you could say it, because the Chinese didn't deal with every single society in exactly the same way over an incredibly long period of time. I mean, that wouldn't make any sense historically. Uh, so maybe there's no system. But there are certain foreign policy ideas and certain foreign policy principles and a certain way of viewing relations with the outside world that, that did persist century after century. Uh, and that, that's, a, that's a part of, of Chinese history that was then adapted to current circumstances. You know, at the same time to say, oh, Chinese people and Chinese government were so different than the rest of the world that they simply did not uh, react to the same way of what the Westerners, that, that's also, that getting into the inscrutable East kind of stuff. And that's, that's not true either. I mean, people <laughs> were still dealing with the same issues of, of trade and diplomacy and power and strategic interests. And so on a certain level, you know, uh, relations between societies had familiar aspects to what we would, you would see in, in any, in any other, other part of the world. I think, I think the danger here is, is just being too simplistic and kind of thinking, oh, well, uh, China did this and this and this, and that makes China different. And, uh, we in the West do this and this and this, and that's how, that's how we're different. And it, unfortunately, things just aren't that simple. So it seems like, I mean, this is a fair characterization, um, that there's really kind of two missions to the book. One is to help Westerners understand that Chinese have their own subjective world history and that, uh, you know, it has a, a whole different set of, of actors and conditions. Uh, the other, though, I thought was, wasn't as explicitly stated, but I thought it was really interesting. And that seems to be to argue that the Chinese world history that you describe, the assumptions that grew out of that history, it's not delusional. I mean, it's actually based on a real material civilizational disparity that endured over a very long period of time. Is, is, is that a fair characterization? Right. I mean, history is, is part perception and part reality, right? So this idea that you're talking about, about, you know, Chinese exceptionalism, for, for instance, um, China was not, you know, always consistently as actually modern Chinese and I think other people tend to believe, China was not a consistently strong power every year for the last, you know, 3,000 years. That's just not how history works uh, in terms of, you know, its military power or political power. Um, but, so, but, and, but at the same time, uh, there is a real asp there are real aspects and real reasons to why the Chinese felt that they were a superior civilization. Uh, that's because they were incredibly advanced for incredibly long periods of time in many, many different aspects, whether it's it's technology, whether it's it's literature, uh, philosophy, uh, legal systems, education, I mean, you can keep going, right? Arts. And right. there's a reason why their neighbors borrowed all the stuff, because if you're trying to, you know, build a kingdom, build a society in, in Korea and in Japan, elsewhere, and you're where are you going to look to? You basically look to China uh, because China had all the best stuff. China had all the most, you know, advanced ideas, the biggest economy, the richest economy, the best technology uh, within view. Right. So to to a certain extent, this this Chinese idea 
that they've always been a superior civilization is actually grounded in, and certain aspects of it are grounded in real life. So, Michael, in the end, what are the major insights that come from an understanding of how Chinese people understand world history? Do you feel like after writing this book, you know how to answer the question of um, what is it exactly that China wants? Well, I mean, we we in the in the U.S. and Europe have spent endless amounts of hours and newspaper ink and everything else trying to figure out what China wants in the future. And I, I you know, there was a uh, the mainstream belief since you know the '80s was that basically China wants to be more like us. China wants to be a wealthier, more open society. That they're going to China is going to become more like the, the U.S. and Europe, and that's going to be encouraged by engagement and trade and, and business and cultural exchange. Now, in the last three to four years or so, now it's changed completely, and we think what China wants is to kind of take over the world uh, in a, in a much more hostile sense, uh, and that China is a strategic threat. Um, and but to a certain extent, the answer to the question, what does China want, uh, it's, it's, somewhat, it's somewhat simple. It, it's China wants what China, China always had, or maybe more appropriately, what China believes it always had. Um, and through large sections of Chinese history, China was a dominant power within its own, within its own world. And it was, a large, it was a dominant economy, and it, it, it had tremendous civilizational influence. So it doesn't surprise me that China today, as they're gaining in wealth and influence, that they see that this is the place in the world that they want, that this is the place that they always had. And to a certain extent, I think Chinese feel that this is their rightful place. And to a certain extent, they have a right. They, this is where they should be, uh, not just where they want to be, but where they, where they should be and where they actually belong as a great power and a great, great civilization. And you have modern political scientists in China writing about this, that because China is a great civilization, China deserves more, more sway in the world because of that. Uh, so right. you can, when you understand things in, the, in that context, what China does and where China, what China does today and how China sees things starts to make a lot more, a lot more sense. Mm, indeed. I know you haven't had a chance to talk to a lot of Chinese scholars about this, but I, I have definitely bounced some of these ideas off of my Chinese friends, my Chinese family. Uh, and I don't think I'm misrepresenting it when I say, yeah, China wants, you know, when I say your your conclusion is that China wants what China always had. But they would come back to me with, you know, look, the world has changed. The world is not the same as the, the world of, of the Song or the, the Ming dynasties. Um they would maybe say that you overstate China's ambitions, uh, that you understate the extent to which China is aware of how much the world has changed and how much they've had to accommodate. They would they would say that the takeaway from the century of humiliation and the, the whole PRC experience is, for one, you know, we won't be bullied again. We're not going to, you know, reoccupy a place of unchallenged centrality in, in some kind of new Sinocentric world, but... They would probably also add that, you know, another vital lesson from the century of humiliation is that China can't go back to that kind of smug sense of civilizational complacency, of uh, superiority that made it so weak and vulnerable to predation in the first place. So um, what would you say to that? Uh, that's actually a, a very good point, because when you look at, you know, again, 
when I talk about this, this interruption, the interruption was actually an interruption in Chinese civilizational power, right? I mean, the fact is that right. tr- societies that traditionally look to China, right, uh, as, as kind of a, the first forward civilizational influence in, in you know, places like Korea, uh, Japan to a lesser extent, Vietnam, other parts of Asia. Uh, they don't do that anymore, right? I mean, they're, they're connected to the West. They're connected primarily to the U.S. I mean, uh, Japan and, and Korea have outright defense arrangements with, with the U.S. So what, what happened in this interruption is that, you know, the, it's not just that China became a weakened country. That's happened many times before. China, the Chinese world was kind of unwound and remade in a new form. And I think that's really the challenge facing China to China today is that can they can they get back all the pillars of power that they used to have? Obviously, they're a very wealthy country and continuing to, to become more wealthy. So they're on their way with that one. They're gaining more and more political influence around the region and around the world. Um, but when you look at that civilizational poll, which that's that's really not there. And what does that mean? Can no, can China indeed. really reassert its power uh, without it? Can China remake the remade world all over again? Uh, and that's I mean, that obviously we we have no idea. Uh, but <laughs> it it definitely makes the situation that China is facing now different than other let's say rising dynasties. If you want to look at the current Chinese government as similar in to many ways to a new another imperial restoration another rising dynasty other rising dynasties did not have to deal with the same problem uh in the way that that the modern chinese government has to uh you know there there weren't other challengers in the region there weren't other civilizational challenges in in the same to, to the same extent as to what the chinese are facing now Indeed. Michael Schumann, thanks so much for taking the time and congrats on the book, which is once again called Superpower Interrupted, The Chinese History of the World. It's very thought provoking, really well written, a great just sort of overview of, of Chinese history for anyone who isn't familiar with it. I think it's, it's great, very much worth reading. Dear Seneca podcast listeners and fans, We were grateful to be able to celebrate the 10th anniversary of our podcast with you guys, and I hope many of you caught that and enjoyed it. We've come a long way since our early days in Beijing in that crude and cruddy studio. Uh, We are delighted that so many of you have come along with us on this ride. Today's SubChina is home not only to Seneca, but to eight other podcasts under the Seneca Network. And we've racked up about a quarter of a million downloads each month. That makes us pretty proud. But we would like to do even more, and we need your help. In celebration of our 10th anniversary, we're launching a fundraising campaign to support our ongoing podcast efforts. We appreciate your showing your support, especially during these difficult days of the COVID-19 pandemic. So please, don't be shy. If you have valued the podcast and would like to see us continue to bring you wide-ranging interviews with the top people in the China field, please show your support. All the funds raised will go to support our team. We get to do the fun part, which is interviewing the guests, doing the research, and writing our questions. But 
We have many other hosts working hard on the other network shows. We have Jason, who tackles the editing and sound engineering on many of the network shows, making them sparkle. And we have Jeremy's editorial team, which does all the back-end support and works to get the shows up on the platforms like iTunes and Spotify and on all the right podcast apps. So help us out. This is the first time in a decade we have asked for any direct financial support. Show us that you value what we're doing and that you've learned something from our work and that we've made a difference in your understanding of China. Go to podcast.subchina.com. That's podcast.subchina.com and help us out. Thank you so much. All right. Let's move on now to recommendations and as usual let's start with jeremy what do you got for us this week okay i'd just like to recommend my colleague uh jayun uh feng jayun or jayun feng as her name appears on our website she writes uh about society and culture for us and if you haven't been following her work she is often first to report on really interesting social phenomena and trends internet culture feminism uh LGBT plus issues um, and stuff that's kind of at the margins of uh, mainstream news, but is really important for understanding what's going on in China. Uh, so that's on SubChina, and you can just look up uh, her work by her name, uh, Jiayun Feng. She's the one writer of ours whose work I just never fail to read and love. She's just great. I second that one. Michael, do you have something for us? Well, uh, sticking with, uh, with Chinese history, since, since that's, the, that, that's what I'm doing, I am actually going to recommend that everybody, if you have not, many, I, many of your listeners probably have, but I'm, I'm going to recommend that everyone go back and pick up their, a copy of the old Analects, Confucian Analects, and give a read through it again. It's not actually very long, and uh, I guess... Uh, people these days with the pandemic probably have more time, um, but uh, there there are there are few single texts uh, about China or really about anything that can give you such an interesting window into how a society formed and how people in that society think uh, and see the world because it still resonates today to a remarkable degree. Confucius and the world he created. I think that's a sort of a, a sideways plug for your, your, your earlier book, which, <laughs> is, which is a great book, by the way. Thank uh, you. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. Yeah. I haven't read The Analect since grad school. I, I mean, it's been a long time. That's a really good suggestion. My, my recommendation is for uh, an essay uh, that just came out by Damien Ma of Macropolo uh, under the Paulson Institute. It's called The Frankenstein That Wasn't, A Realistic Appraisal of Today's China. And as the author argues, uh, in the spirit of your book, Michael, I might add, we need to put more China into our thinking about the U.S.-China relationship. Uh, too often, you know, it's just – it's this, this thing that we've constructed uh, that – doesn't represent Chinese realities. So it's uh, quite a good essay, a very, very, uh, I think, powerful essay. Okay, that is it for this week. Michael, thanks once again, and best of luck to you with the book and with the coming move, I believe. You're, you're making a move soon, yeah? Uh, yeah, it looks like I'm going to be heading to Hong Kong, actually, for a little while. Oh, wow. Out of the frying pan. <laughs> Jeremy, man, a pleasure as always. Yeah, thank you, Michael. Thanks, Kaiser.
The Seneca Podcast is powered by SupChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SupChina News. And make sure to check out all the other shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care. Thank you.